Well, these days I find myself reading the news from my iPhone in one hand and then in the other hand looking for hope in the Bible, searching for God's purposes and promises of grace amidst the rubble and destruction that we see. And like many of you, I am sure, I was very struck by the story of the mayor of Melitopol in Ukraine, Mr. Ivan Fedorov, who refused to fly the Russian flag. He resolutely continued to fulfill his duty as elected Ukrainian mayor, going into his office to do the work of caring for his people. I wondered where, deep down in his understanding of himself, he had found the resources to make such a brave choice. No matter the consequences, of course, he was abducted. What a consequence for him and for his family. Where would we find the sort of inner vision and commitment to make such a choice? When things get difficult and there is a crumbling of hope, when we are afraid, what will we draw from to do the good thing? This morning, we read a passage from the Gospel of Luke describing a moment in Jesus' last journey to Jerusalem. He is going as the king of peace. He's going to be on that donkey going into Jerusalem with no weapons but the weapons of the Spirit. But he already knows what awaits him there. The passage begins with some Pharisees coming up to him, apparently to give him a friendly warning. Get away, because Herod wants to kill you. Now, a lot of pages have been written about this little detail that we only find in the Gospel of Luke. The question that scholars debate is whether the Pharisees actually have Jesus' best interest at heart. Throughout Luke's gospel, the Pharisees are hostile towards Jesus. So when we hear them professing concern for his safety, well, the alert reader is a little suspicious. It's sort of as if, you know, you're at a play and somebody comes in dressed as a snake and starts to sing a song, trust in me, you know? You wonder, should I really trust this person? Well, despite the way that Luke has set us up to distrust the Pharisees, it is possible that this group is a subset who are genuinely being drawn to Jesus' powerful ministry of healing and teaching, and that they do want to protect him from destruction, just like Peter did. Remember, Peter tried to convince Jesus not to go to Jerusalem. But it is also possible that they are not sympathetic and that they are testing him. They are careful readers of Scripture, and they know that indeed a true prophet will follow in the footsteps of other true prophets and will die in Jerusalem. It's a sort of mark of authenticity. So in effect, they're trying to dissuade Jesus 
from taking the very path that God has given him in order to discredit Jesus. Go away from Herod, they are saying. Steer clear of Jerusalem. But Jesus answers them. This is my own translation. If you're so up to date on Herod's plans, you go to Herod, who he describes as that fox, and tell him that I am going to keep on healing people, and I am going to keep on freeing them from demonic oppression, and I'm going to keep on doing the very good works that my heavenly Father has given me to do until I arrive in Jerusalem and complete my work. Jesus is not afraid of Herod, not because he's naive. Jesus has eyes wide open to the reality of evil and its hideous consequences, but he is apparently not intimidated. And just like I wonder about that mayor, Mr. Ivan Fedorov, and where he found the inner resources to stand up against those soldiers, just as I wonder about him, I wonder even more about Jesus, the man. Where did he find the courage to stand up against those threats and walk peacefully into Jerusalem? What were his resources? And I don't just mean the obvious supernatural ones. Despite his divine stature, Jesus had confined himself to a human body and a human mind and a human Sunday school teacher. Except it was Saturday, of course. Just like our children that we send off to Miss Kate, that they be brought up in the faith. Jesus humbled himself to be truly human and have his mind formed. And the fact is, that we pray that we might have the mind of Christ. And so it seems not altogether outside of our Christian obligation to try and imagine what was the framework of Jesus' thinking. What interior structures had he built over those 30 years that would determine his responses? Of course, it was the Hebrew Scriptures that formed the human mind of Jesus. And into that intellectual framework, his heavenly Father spoke to him quite directly and personally. But those things are intertwined because Jesus wouldn't have recognized the voice of his heavenly Father if he had not read the Scriptures. And through these two intertwined, enlightening forces, Jesus came to know all about the real power and ugliness of evil and its limits. And this is significant. Those of you who are reading through the Psalms have come across many verses pointing out both the dreadful costliness of wickedness, but also its impermanence. Psalm 37 tells us, Do not fret yourself because of evildoers. Do not envy the wicked. 
for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Jesus prayed the Psalms, and that must have formed him deeply in his understanding of his enemies and their actual strength. And conversely, Jesus knew all about the real, deep-down power of good. And its unstoppable courses from the foundations of the world. The psalmist says, turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever, for the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. The Bible does not present good and evil as equally opposing forces. Neither Christianity nor Judaism present these sort of dueling powers like the Chinese philosophy of yin and yang. You know, you've got that sort of black swirly thing and then the white swirly thing and they look kind of even and you don't know which one's going to come on, on top. In the Bible, evil is no match for good. This is not a competition between Duke and Chapel Hill, where the spectators are in agony on the edges of their seats, wondering who's going to win. No, from the beginning, we know that evil gets trounced in the end. It has no roots in the lasting good DNA of creation. It is a temporary interloper in the great good kingdom that God has made. We know it from the start. Genesis tells us that that talking serpent who came in well after, you know, the beginning of creation. We know there was the beginning of creation, and God looked at it, and what did he say? It was, yeah, it was good. That's the first thing. And then a little later on, in comes this talking serpent, apparently to ruin things. But God says to that serpent after he does his best that he will have his head bruised and that the man will have his heel bruised, which is a lot better news for the man than it is for the serpent. From early Christian times, that verse is understood as the proto-evangelium, the foreshadowing of the gospel. When Jesus will give his life, his bruised heel, but it's only temporary, Jesus will give his life to conquer that talking serpent and the grip of evil. The story of creation reminds us that goodness has been around longer than evil. And in his marvelous book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Breviary of Sin, Cornelius Plantinga says, at some level of our being, we realize that goodness is as plausible and original as God, and that in the history of the human race, goodness is older than sin. So back to the question, how will we be formed to do the good thing? Well, for starters, 
we do need to undertake the formation of our minds. If Jesus needed to read the scriptures, how much more do we? And our children too. Don't think that you can send your children to learn the gospel on a field of sport. I have a husband who loves to compete, but he is not mistaken that he needs to come to church. And so do our children. It's hard to do it, but you need to make that space. We need to read the scriptures. We need to know what they say. And it's funny, you know, the less that people read the scriptures, the more they think they already know them. I don't know if you've met people, they, they think they know all about the Bible, although they really don't read it very much. And if you are one who kind of spends some time in the Bible, well, you find it astonishing that you always read things that you thought, well, gee whiz, I never thought that was in there. It strikes you as altogether new and wonderful. The Bible starts us with its promises of mercy. They never get old, do they? Or they're examples of perseverance and resilience. That promise of everlasting life. You know, I search the scriptures for when Jesus actually says, yes, you're going to be with me in paradise. He says it a lot of times in different ways about a feast. He says it over and over again. It never gets old reading that we are going to be with Jesus in paradise. And the scriptures, of course, they challenge us to stop sinning in exactly the particular way that we are sinning. That's always startling too, you know? You thought you were going to take a little easy trip into the Bible, and it speaks right to you. Scripture gives us the eternal lens that puts evil and good in right perspective so that we are not overwhelmed. Theologian Howard Thurman says this, there is no need to fear evil. There is every reason to understand what it does, how it operates in the world, and what it draws upon to sustain itself. He goes on to explain that the real goal of evil is not the destruction of the body or the rubble and destruction of cities, but the deep corruption of the inner being of a person or whole groups of people, destroying their decision-making self. The goal of evil is to convince a soul that there is no hope, that kindness is a silly waste of time, that there is no redemption, and that the good deeds which we do are just pathetic delusions. What resources do we have to do the good thing? Well, we have even more than Jesus had available to him because, of course, his scriptures were the Old Testament scriptures, and they're just kind of a bit of a misty foreshadowing 
of the promises of God. You know, you heard that whole story about Abraham and the flame and this covenant that was God was going to make with his people and he would give Abraham land. It's a misty foreshadowing. As New Testament people, we have four gospel accounts that witness to the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Four eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts of the bodily resurrection of Jesus, which is to say that what is truly good is everlasting. What is truly right and just is everlasting. Jesus shows us that in his bodily resurrection. And that is why, of course, he was able to say with great confidence, don't store up your treasures here on earth. Store them in heaven where moles can't get in and interfere with them. Because he knows that we would in fact have access to heaven one day. He wouldn't have said it if we didn't. We are banking on the eternity of goodness, the eternity of God's plan for his world. To turn now to one of those scriptures that reminds us of this reality. John 3:16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And for that reason, Jesus spends his last day doing good, healing people, releasing them from demonic oppression. Those kind words to his mother Mary, all of those deeds were not a waste of time because he knew that they were eternal. And that's true for us too. The good that we do here on, in, on earth is eternal. In Jesus' name.